Section 37 of The Cambridge Modern History, Volume 1, The Renaissance. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 11, The Catholic Kings, by H. Butler Clark, Part 3 the barbary pirates not only rendered the sea unsafe but acting in concert with the moriscos made frequent descents upon the spanish coast spreading terror and devastation far inland in fifteen o five at the instigation of jimenez mers el kibir one of their strongholds had been captured the disturbed condition of spain made it impossible immediately to follow up this success but Jimenez had not lost sight of his policy of African conquest. A war against the infidel always stirred the crusading spirit of the Spaniards, and Ferdinand saw in it a way of turning public attention from late events. In 1508, a small expedition under Pedro Navarro captured Peñón de la Gomera. In the following year, a larger one was prepared jimenez lent money out of the vast revenues of his see and himself accompanied the army of fourteen thousand men to oran may fifteen o nine the city was captured and many christian captives were set free but the glory of the victory was stained by a brutal massacre of unarmed inhabitants within a month jimenez was back in spain he had quarrelled with pedro navarro the general in command of the expedition and was moreover alarmed by reports that ferdinand was plotting to deprive him of his archbishopric in favor of his illegitimate son the archbishop of saragossa pedro navarro remained behind and in a few months effected a series of brilliant conquests Budja fell after a siege algiers and Tlemcen surrendered Tripolis was stormed. Grown over bold, Navarro fell into an ambuscade among the sandhills of the waterless island of Gelves. The greater part of his army perished, and the tide of Spanish conquest in Africa was stayed for a time. August 1510. The recovery of Roussillon and Cerdagne gave Ferdinand command of the eastern passes of the Pyrenees, but Spanish unity was still incomplete while the kingdom of navarre lying astride of the western end of the range held the keys of spain torn by the continual wars of her two great factions the beaumonts and gramonts and crushed by the neighborhood of more powerful states navarre could not hope to preserve her independence she was moreover ruled by a feeble dynasty that had not taken root in the soil navarre had belonged to ferdinand's father in right of his first wife but had passed by right of marriage to her great-grandson francois febus count of foix and later to his sister catherine ferdinand sought to secure the prize by marrying his son to catherine the scheme was frustrated by her mother madeleine sister of louis the twelfth and catherine married jean d'albret a gascon nobleman whose large estates lay on the border of lower navarre nevertheless 
Ferdinand found means of frequently interfering in the affairs of his neighbors. He protected the Beaumont faction and the dynasty against King Louis, who supported the claims of a younger branch of the House of Foix, represented first by the Viscount of Narbonne and later by Gaston Febou, brother of Ferdinand's second wife. In 1511, Pope Julius II, the Emperor, the Venetians, Ferdinand, and Henry VIII of England formed the Holy League for the purpose of crushing France. Bent on his scheme of recovering Guyane, Henry sent an army to Guipuscoa to cooperate with the Spaniards, 1512. Ferdinand's opportunity had now come. He demanded a free passage for his troops through Navarre and the surrender of fortresses as a guarantee of neutrality. Jean d'Albret tried to evade compliance by allying himself with the French. Ferdinand retaliated by a manifesto, declaiming against his faithlessness and ingratitude, and by ordering the Duke of Alva to invade Navarre, July 1512. Five days later, the Spaniards, aided by the Beaumontes, encamped before Pamplona, and Jean d'Albret fled to seek help from the French army encamped near Bayonne. Pamplona surrendered on receiving guarantees of its liberties, which it held dearer than its foreign dynasty. Failing to get help from the French, Jean d'Albret, though his capital was already in the enemy's hands, attempted negotiation, professing his readiness to accept any terms that might be dictated. Ferdinand, however, insisted on his claim to hold Navarre until he should complete his holy enterprise against France. Most of the Navarre's towns and fortresses now surrendered. Tudela was besieged by the Aragonese under the Archbishop of Saragossa. Early in August, Ferdinand renewed his promise to give up the kingdom at the end of the war. His messenger was seized and imprisoned and on the 21st of the month he published at Burgos the bull Pater ille coelestis, excommunicating all who resisted the Holy League and declaring their lands and honors forfeited to those who should seize them. Although Jean d'Albret and Catherine were not named, the bull specially mentioned the Basques and Cantabrians, and dread of its threats brought about the surrender of the few places that still held out in Upper Navarre. Ferdinand now threw off the mask and took the title of King of Navarre. Meanwhile, Alva had crossed the mountains and summoned the Marquis of Dorset from his camp near San Sebastian to aid in the conquest of Lower Navarre. The English, however, declared that they had come to conquer not Navarre, but Guyenne, and since it was now too late in the year for that purpose, they sailed home after plundering a small part of the frontier. A French army advanced against Alva, who recrossed the mountains without fighting, and shut himself up in Pamplona. But after two fierce assaults, the French in turn withdrew on the approach of Spanish reinforcements. The whole of Upper Navarre and the district of Ultrapuertos, north of the mountains, remained in Ferdinand's hands. In 1513, the Navarrese Cortes swore allegiance to him 
and the French king abandoned his allies by concluding a truce. Navarre was incorporated with Castile, 1515. Ultrapuertos was, however, afterwards abandoned on account of the expense of keeping up an outpost beyond the mountains, 1530. The last three years of Ferdinand's life were uneventful, so far as Spain is concerned. Although he was involved in the tangled skein of alliances and plots by which the fate of Italy was decided, his interest in politics was no longer active. His chief anxiety was to leave a son to succeed to his patrimony. One had been born of his second marriage, but had died shortly after birth. Although he was eager to become a father once more, he was not destined to undo his life's work. Spanish unity. He fell ill, 1513, and with the restlessness of a dying man, wandered through the mountain villages of Castile, pursuing his favorite occupation of hunting. A strong Spanish party, led by Don Juan Manuel and supported by France, still opposed him, scheming in favor of Maximilian's claim to govern Spain as regent for his grandson. King Ferdinand held them in check, and set up against Charles his younger brother Ferdinand, who had been brought up in Spain and was now regarded as the probable successor to the United Crowns, or at least to that of Aragon. In 1515, King Ferdinand visited Aragon for the last time, and held Cortés at Calatayud. His arbitrary temper had grown upon him, and when supply was refused, he struck a last fierce blow at his country's liberties by angrily dismissing the deputies and imprisoning their president. When his end was known to be near, September 1515, the Flemish party sent to Adrian of Utrecht to act in the name of his former pupil, the Infante Charles. King Ferdinand died in the village of Madrigalejo, January 1516, leaving behind him a reputation for political wisdom, astonishing when it is remembered that he was an unlettered man. But it was his unscrupulousness that left the deepest mark upon the age. During Isabel's lifetime, he had screened his grasping policy behind her religious enthusiasm, and had used her haughty and upright spirit as an instrument for attaining his selfish ends. He had never sought to be loved, and after her death his character stood revealed in its native harshness. Quote, no reproach attaches to him, says Guicciardini, save his lack of generosity and his faithlessness to his word. End quote. Shortly before his death, he revoked a will which favored his younger grandson and namesake, and now bequeathed to him only a pension so modest as to preclude all chance of rivalry with his brother. He left the crowns of Aragon and the two Sicilies to his daughter Juana, Queen of Castile, appointing her son Charles regent in her name. To Jimenez he entrusted the government of Castile, and to his bastard son, the Archbishop of Saragossa, that of Aragon. Jiménez, although more than eighty years old, undertook the charge with his wonted energy. 
acting under instructions from Flanders and disregarding the protests of the Castilians, he proclaimed Charles as king, conjointly with his mother, May 1516. He reformed the household of Queen Juana, who had been ill-treated by a brutal governor. He fixed the seat of government at Madrid, on account of its central position. He secured the person of the Infante Ferdinand, whose discontent was being fomented by interested advisers. By sheer force of character, he set aside Adrian of Utrecht, who had been sent to share the regency. He revoked all grants of lands and pensions made since Isabel's death, when a commission of grandees waited upon him to inquire by virtue of what power he had taken this step, he pointed to the artillery massed below his palace. Not content with the regular forces of the crown, he attempted to revive in more efficient form the old militia and sent commissioners to enroll a force of 31,000 men. Exemption from taxation was promised to all who gave in their names. A certain number in each district were to be armed and drilled, and to receive pay when called out. The nobles took alarm, and stirred up the municipalities to resist what was represented as a new burden and an encroachment on their liberties. Valladolid and other cities rose in revolt, and forwarded a protest to Charles in Flanders. The matter was ordered to stand over until his arrival. Four years later, the municipalities had reason to regret their lack of military organization. Thinking to profit by the unsettled state of Spain, Jean d'Albret invaded Navarre and laid siege to Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port. He was supported by native exiles who broke in through the pass of Roncal, hoping for a rising within the country. They were met before effecting a junction with the king and were utterly defeated, March 1516. Jean d'Albret gave up the enterprise. He died three months later, leaving his claims to his son Henri. Jiménez began to fortify Pamplona as a stronghold for the Castilian garrison, while he dismantled a number of outlying castles which might give protection to invaders. In pursuit of his policy of African conquest, Jiménez sent an expedition against Algiers, which had been seized by Barbarossa, the famous renegade corsair, September 1516. In consequence of the incapacity of its leader, the expedition met with a crushing defeat and was almost annihilated. Jiménez's schemes were everywhere thwarted by Charles's Flemish counselors. With their chief, William de Croix, seigneur de Chèvre, he had tried unsuccessfully to establish a good understanding. Flemish interests required alliance with France, and in pursuit of this object, they were ready to sacrifice Spanish interests in Italy and Navarre. For a time, they were successful. By the Treaty of Noyon, October 1516, Charles became betrothed to Francis's infant daughter, promising to satisfy the claims of the Albrez in Navarre and to give up Queen Germain's dowry. Moreover, a growing feeling of discontent was provoked in Spain by the shameless traffic in Spanish offices 
of dignity and profit carried on by Flemish courtiers. The grandees, who writhed under Jimenez's strong hand, flocked with their complaints to Flanders and obtained a ready hearing. The people were persuaded that Juana was sane and shut out from her rights by a cruel plot. Jimenez, surrounded by difficulties, wrote repeatedly, urging Charles to come to Spain and warning him of the rising discontent of the municipalities. At last, in September 1517, Charles landed on the Asturian coast. He was only seventeen years old. His health was delicate, and his diffidence had been increased by his being brought up under such masterful spirits as Chevre and his Aunt Margaret. He found himself in a strange country, seething with half-repressed rebellion. He could not speak a word of Spanish. The grandees hastened to welcome the king, but access to his presence was barred by the Flemings. Jimenez, too, journeyed northward to meet the prince whom he had so manfully served. He wished, before his death, to explain the policy by which the mutinous spirit of Castile might be appeased, and the anarchy of Aragon quelled. The Flemings, foreseeing that their influence would be at an end if Charles fell under the influence of the cardinal's powerful will, did their utmost to prevent a meeting. Jimenez was accordingly checked by a letter in which Charles thanked him for his services and invited him to an interview, after which he was ordered to retire to his diocese and take such rest as his health demanded. Jimenez did not survive his political downfall. His death, November 8, left Spain entirely in the hands of the foreigners, among whom his honors were speedily divided. Adrian was made cardinal. Chievre became chief minister of the crown. His youthful nephew, William de Croix, archbishop of Toledo, and Jean Le Savage, Chancellor. Jimenez's policy had been directed to assure the supremacy of the crown while giving to the people such rights and a cohesion as should balance the power of the nobles. He had also attempted to found a Spanish empire in Africa. The latter scheme was intermittently prosecuted after his death, but its special importance was lost sight of amid dreams of universal empire. The natural development of the political rights of the people was checked, and their hardly won municipal liberties were crushed in the struggles that followed. Charles aimed from the first at the absolute power which in the end swallowed up the liberties of nobles and commons alike. After a brief visit to his mad mother at Tordesillas, where she passed fifty years of her life, Charles made a triumphal entry into Valladolid, November 1517. Here, in the following spring, the Castilian Cortes assembled. The grandees were disgusted to find that all favors fell to foreigners. The sessions opened stormily for Spanish jealousy had been aroused by the appointment of a Fleming to preside in conjunction with the bishop of Badajoz, a known ally of the foreign party. Two legal assessors watched the proceedings on behalf of the crown. 
the commons had hoped to profit by the inexperience of the prince in order to extend their rights led by dr zumel proctor of burgos they adopted a haughty tone reminded charles of his duties as king and actually addressed him as our hireling they claimed contrary to custom that he should swear to observe their liberties before receiving the oath of allegiance and should hear petitions before they granted supply charles submitted to the former demand and was acknowledged as sovereign in conjunction with his mother this was a disappointment for he had hoped to rule alone the cortes voted a supply of somewhat more than the usual amount spread over three years in answer to a long list of petitions the king promised to learn to speak spanish to forbid illegal exportation of gold and silver to grant no further offices or letters of naturalization to foreigners to keep his brother in spain till the succession should be assured not to alienate crown property and not to give up navarre charles then hurried on to hold cortes at saragossa the aragonese proved more stubborn freed from ferdinand's strong hand the nobles had shaken off all respect for the crown and moreover charles was thoroughly distrusted regardless of his late promises he had sent his brother ferdinand to flanders and on the death of jean le sauvage had appointed another foreign chancellor arborio di gattinara the aragonese first disputed charles's right to call cortes they next demanded proof of juana's incapacity and when finally they consented to acknowledge him as king in conjunction with her they insisted on declaring that if she should recover she alone would be queen in aragon charles was forced to adopt a submissive attitude he sought to win over the people by breaking down the usurped privileges of the nobles but it cost him eight months and he had to undergo many affronts before he could obtain a grant of money so small that it was insufficient for paying his expenses in order to replenish the treasury the supply voted by the castilians was farmed offices were sold and the inquisition was urged to ruthless confiscation the tide of discontent rose higher than ever at barcelona objection was again taken to swearing the oath of allegiance to charles during his mother's lifetime only after ten months were bribery and flattery able to break down opposition and elicit a moderate grant charles was preparing to meet the parliament of valencia january fifteen twenty when news was brought of his election as king of the romans in succession to his grandfather maximilian the report that the king was about to quit spain roused the indignation against him to the highest pitch the castilian cities were jealous of the time he had spent in aragon and catalonia haggling to obtain small supplies while loyal castile which had voted an extra sum was neglected there was no reason to fear that spain would sink to the level of a mere province of the empire already in november toledo had sent a circular letter to the cities possessing votes in the cortes urging them to combine in order to prevent the departure of the king 
the export of gold and government by foreigners some made no reply others like salamanca joined eagerly in the protest a commission was appointed to lay before charles the demands of the kingdom whereupon he sent to toledo a new and more energetic corregidor to check the spirit of mutiny wishing to obtain money and at the same time to tranquilize the public mind by explanations and promises he summoned parliament to meet him at santiago de compostela february fifteen twenty as he hurried northward he was overtaken at valladolid by the commissioners from toledo and salamanca who insisted in spite of his orders on fulfilling their charge he bade them follow the court until he could find time to attend to them a report that queen juana was to be carried out of the country provoked a riot and a rash attempt to check the king's departure from valladolid the cruelty with which these excesses were avenged still further irritated the people at villalpando the promised audience was granted to the commissioners of the cities but charles was in no mood for yielding he harshly bade them await the meeting of parliament to lay their wishes before him meanwhile the court party was doing its utmost to secure submissive deputies a royal decree directed that an unlimited commission should be given to the proctors according to a prescribed form toledo refused to comply her proctors were instructed merely to hear and report on the proposals of the king other cities while granting a commission in the prescribed form limited it by secret instructions to resist all demands for money it was amid the gloomiest forebodings that the cortes met at santiago march fifteen twenty the selection of a place so far removed from the centre of spain was suspicious even if promises were wrung from the departing king their fulfilment was unlikely at such a distance from their electors deputies might easily be bribed or intimidated the chief cause of complaint however was the demand for further supply while the grant of fifteen eighteen had still a year to run an attempt was made to soothe irritation by the appointment of a spanish president and a conciliatory speech from the throne was read by the bishop of badajoz in the presence of charles himself toledo was unrepresented having refused to grant the prescribed commission the deputies of salamanca were excluded for refusing to take the oath before petitions had been heard the nobles disgusted at their exclusion from the royal favor had quitted the court charles hurried on to coruna in order to be able to embark at a moment's notice and reach england april the remaining deputies followed and were cajoled and threatened until by a narrow majority they voted a supply of three hundred millions of maravedis they petitioned for a spanish regent for the speedy return of the king for the better administration of justice against the nomination of deputies by the crown and the exaction of unlimited commissions that the cortes should meet every three years that the summons should contain a list of the matters to be discussed and that deputies should be compelled 
to render an account to their electors within a stated time most of these petitions were refused or left unanswered the cortes were dismissed and in may charles set sail leaving nobles and people equally discontented adrian of utrecht was appointed by him regent in his absence the return of the deputies from coruna was the signal for rioting in many cities some who had voted supply contrary to instructions were murdered by the mob led by toledo the cities from leon to murcia and from burgos to Jaen formed a league under the name of the santa comunidad and expelled the corregidores to the cry of long live the king down with the bad ministers avila was chosen on account of its central position as the meeting-place of their junta july fifteen twenty which included nobles and ecclesiastics as well as commons it began by declaring itself independent of the regent and council and organizing the levies of the cities under the command of juan de padilla a nobleman of toledo adrian's attempts to check the revolt were feeble and unsuccessful a small body of troops sent with ronquillo a judge of notorious severity to punish segovia where the outbreak had been specially violent was easily beaten off an attempt made by fonseca one of the royal captains to seize the artillery which ximenes had kept in readiness at medina del campo not only failed but resulted in the destruction by fire of the town one of the richest in spain adrian was obliged to disband fonseca's army and disavow his action a more serious blow to the royal cause followed padilla seized tordesillas and with it the person of queen juana august twenty nine the santa junta now removed to tordesillas and proclaimed that the queen was sane and approved its actions valladolid the seat of the regency was captured some members of the royal council were imprisoned others among them adrian himself fled october eighteen the great seal of the kingdom and the state papers fell into the hands of the rebels led by adrian who despaired from the first the friends of charles in spain wrote to him that all was lost unless he returned at once and came to terms with the comuneros but charles never yielded his cause was aided more by the incapacity of its opponents than by the energy of the royalists instead of setting up a government in the place of that which it had overthrown the junta continued to declare its loyalty unable to conceive any authority other than that of the monarchy it wasted its time in trying to persuade the imbecile queen to confirm its acts juana had received its members when they broke into tordesillas with some show of favor but her steady refusal to sign documents was not to be shaken the main theory of the revolution that the queen was sane and that her faithful commons were to deliver her and shake off the hated yoke of the foreigner had broken down juana's obstinacy acted as a physical obstacle disheartened and irresolute 
the junta betook itself to the only other source of legitimate authority and sent a deputation to flanders to assure the king of its loyalty and beg confirmation of its acts at the same time it forwarded a long list of petitions these included charles's return to spain and marriage the reform of the court on the model of ferdinand and isabel's the reduction of taxes to the standard of fourteen ninety four the better administration of justice together with demands that corregidores should not be appointed without a request on the part of the municipality concerned and then only for two years that municipalities should elect their proctors without interference that the commission of the proctors should not be prescribed and that death should be the penalty for accepting bribes that the cortes should meet every three years and that the three orders should be represented that nobles should be excluded from municipal and financial offices and from the exclusive use of waste and common lands that such lands as they had seized should be restored within six months that isabel's will and charles's own oath forbidding the alienation of any part of the royal patrimony should be observed so as to obviate the necessity for extraordinary taxation these petitions never reached charles for the messengers hearts failed them and they turned back but they show that the junta utterly misunderstood its position and the character of the king the last two clauses mark a change of spirit they are directed against the nobles some of whom had acquiesced in or favored the insurrection so soon as their usurped privileges were threatened they began to rally round the throne this tendency was furthered by a masterly stroke of policy urged by adrian's despairing appeals for help charles nominated two spanish grandees the constable and the admiral of castile to share the regency he bade them temporize and dissimulate call cortes in his name if advisable but sanction no curtailment of the royal authority the constable raised an army in the north under the command of his son the count of haro and aided by zumel who a year before had figured as a champion of popular rights but had been brought over by a bribe he recovered the city of burgos where jealousy of toledo's leadership was strong the admiral joined adrian at rio secco which forthwith became the rallying place of the royalists and began to treat with the comuneros these appointments silenced the complaints of the grandees as to the neglect of their order nor could the popular party any longer complain that the land was left to the government of strangers internal quarrels still further weakened the comuneros flattered by the adhesion of pedro giron a nobleman with a private grievance they made him captain in place of padilla november this was considered as a slight by the toledans and their contingent marched home the loss of padilla and his men was compensated by the arrival of alonso de acuna bishop of zamora one of the boldest and most skilful captains of the time giron marched against rio seco but either betraying the cause he served or fooled by sham negotiations 
he let his opportunity slip. His army melted away. The Count of Haro relieved Rioseco and recaptured Tordesillas together with the Queen and some members of the Junta, December 5. The cry of treachery was raised and Giron became a fugitive. An amnesty and a few conciliatory measures would now have put an end to the movement, but the regents were hindered by Charles's obstinacy. He not only sternly forbade further concession, but disavowed the moderate conditions under which Burgos had returned to its loyalty. He seemed utterly reckless, leaving his agents to fight alone, and even allowing their letters to remain unanswered. But the regents had now the nobility on their side, for the comuneros became daily more democratic and radical. When the junta reassembled at Valladolid, its disorganization was more than ever apparent. Its authority was lost. It had not even a definite rallying cry. Now that his rival was gone, Padilla returned with his troops from Toledo. Though his unfitness for command was known, he was elected captain by popular acclaim. A French army was on the point of invading Navarre, and a powerful noble, the Count of Salvatierra, had revolted in the north. But again, the forces of the comuneros were divided. For Bishop Acuña, hearing that the see of Toledo was vacant, marched southward, hoping for the second time in his life to win a mitre by force of arms. The royalist party was not more united. Adrian wrote that any one of the grandees would gladly lose an eye in order that his fellow might suffer the same. The constable and the admiral had fallen out as to the proper course of action. The former advocated force, the latter the continuation of negotiations. In the spring of 1521, Padilla led out his ill-equipped forces and by a stroke of fortune captured the strong castle of Torre Lobaton. Instead, however, of following up on his success, he lingered while the constable, after defeating the Count of Salvatierra in the north, marched with a fresh army to join his son at Tordesillas. Fear and a suspicion that their leaders were busy making terms spread confusion in the comuneros' ranks. Many of the soldiers deserted. Others betook themselves to indiscriminate plunder. Convinced that to risk a battle with the remainder of his disheartened force would be madness, Padilla retired as the Count of Haro advanced. While making his way down the valley of the Dauro to the protection of the castle of Toro, he was overtaken at Villalar, April 23, 1521. His troops were easily dispersed, and though he sought death, he was himself captured alive. On the following day he was put to death, together with his second-in-command. An enthusiastic but not unselfish supporter of the popular cause, he had devoted his valor to its service, but his jealousy and incompetence unfitted him alike for command and for the rank of hero to which latter-day liberals have raised him. Bishop Acuña, after one or two skirmishes in the neighborhood of Ocaña, wasted his time and popularity in an attempt 
to compel the chapter of Toledo to accept him as archbishop. On receipt of the news of the disaster of Villalar, he fled. Padilla's widow, whose family connections and high spirit gave her great authority, held out at Toledo for a few months. After a useless struggle, she escaped to Portugal, and the war of the Comuneros was at an end. End of section 37 Recording by Linda Johnson